Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Today we're going to be talking with Mark Linzer and Michelle LeClaire. They are both physicians at Hennepin Healthcare. Mark is the M. Thomas Stillman Endowed Chair and Vice Chair for Education, Mentorship, and Scholarship in the Department of Medicine at Hennepin Healthcare and Professor of Medicine at University of Minnesota with a long history of studying physician distress. Michelle is a physician specializing in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at Hennepin Healthcare. She's the Senior Medical Director for Critical Care and Chief Wellness Officer. So we originally met Mark and Michelle through an article that had been written by Mark and a co-author in eClinical Medicine called Eliminating Burnout and Moral Injury, Bolder Steps Required. And this is an article which detailed some of the thoughts that they had about uh, immediate ways to address some of the issues, particularly as COVID was coming along and was beginning to change our lives. And so we asked them to join us to talk about some of their ideas. So let's have a listen. Mark Linzer and Michelle LeClaire, thank you so much for joining us. I guess we should start today by having you introduce yourself, just give a brief introduction of who you are and why we've asked you to come here. Sure. I'm uh, Michelle LeClaire. I'm the Senior Medical Director for Critical Care at Hennepin Healthcare. I'm uh, also the Interim Chief Wellness Officer, and I work clinically as a pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine physician. Uh, my interest in terms of research has been focused on burnout and moral injury, in particular within ICU workers. And Mark? Yeah, my name is Mark Linzer. I'm vice chair of the Department of Medicine at Hennepin and professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota, director of our Institute for Professional Work Life. Been studying stress and burnout mainly among physicians for the past 20 years. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for, for both for both coming along. I, I think we'll start with Mark. Can you talk to us a little about your recent findings regarding clinician distress? Uh, of course. Thank you for asking, Simon. So our recent findings, some are published, some not yet published. Most are national in scope, and all are consistent with very high rates of stress and burnout in physicians, advanced practice clinicians, clinical and non-clinical healthcare workers, including nurses, nursing assistants, and administrative leaders. I will defer to Michelle about our findings on moral injury. Thank you, Mark. So this started for me in order to give voice to moral distress in the setting that I saw it most. Uh, we constructed a brief moral distress survey based on Hamrick's um, gold standard measure moral distress for healthcare professionals to administer to ICU providers and nurses. And what we found is that issues such as compromising patient care due to lack of resources, such as staff, lack of administrative support for problems that result in less optimal patient care and providing non-beneficial care are kind of the leading issues in our ICUs. Other domains that we asked about were regarding working with abusive families or patients um, and caring for patients who have inadequate pain control or suffering, and then newly sort of described uh, out of focus groups was um, caring for patients who 
had healthcare issues exacerbated by broader structural inequities. So we're working on a brief instrument to measure serially and design um, interventions um, and be able to remeasure. So that work is looking promising. On the national stage, we are definitely finding that both moral injury or um, compromising integrity at work and burnout are um, very high nationally, as Mark said. This is especially true in ICU nurses and providers, but no one is spared from the emergency department to clinics. Both burnout and moral distress are associated with higher intent to leave and reduce clinical effort. And of course, this has many implications. Yeah, so uh, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about when you say intent to leave, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, so the question that we've used is two questions, really. One is, are you intending to leave the practice within the um, next two years? And it's a five-point Likert scale. And the second is, are you intending to reduce your clinical effort? And again, another five-point Likert scale. Yeah, so you're really trying to get at how much has this impacted people and made them want to think about changing whether or not they work in healthcare. Yeah, and I don't think it's the most important metric, but it's one that we all sort of can understand. And one certainly administrators should be able to understand as a um, quality of care issue and as a financial um, issue as well. Right. Mark, could you tell us a little bit what the hospital is, Hennepin County? What is it like? So we're a safety net hospital. We have about 500 beds and maybe 150,000 patients. Uh, We take care of the patients in need in the city of Minneapolis and throughout the state. Maybe 60% of our patients are persons of color and a large proportion are immigrants and refugees. Most people come here because they wish to serve that population. Mm -hmm. And how did you both get involved in burnout and moral injury? I guess this is, again, a question for both of you, but Obviously, it's not the easiest thing to use as your research interest. And Mark, you mentioned you've been involved in this kind of work for 20 years. And obviously, Michelle's been working on a lot of the survey work as well. How have you both gotten involved in it? So we started this work maybe 25 years ago um, as a study of career interest in primary care or in internal medicine. And at a time that career interest was flagging in those professions. And then the leader of our national organization say, why don't you study physician satisfaction? Because people don't want to do a profession that people are not happy in. So we did. We did a physician work-life study for Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And in that study, we included a burnout question, which had some striking findings. And that was 20 years ago. And so we did several papers based upon those findings and then did some comparisons with some international data sets predicting burnout. And then did a major study for the Federal Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality about five years later as part of the National Patient Safety Initiative to look at the impact of work conditions on clinicians and their patients. And that was called the MEMO study, Minimizing Error, Maximizing Outcome. And that was a major trial that showed how the work environment that we work in affects us and also affects the quality of care that we can give. I have a Decidedly shorter CV than Mark and less experience. <laughs> I, I, well, I've been interested in burnout 
um, and moral distress for quite some time. Um, it's only been recently that I've started to really investigate with any scientific rigor. Um, my interest really stemmed from actually living moral distress in the ICU setting, um, which has only gotten worse with COVID. And so these these issues are live really close to my everyday work, which is primarily clinical care. So, Michelle, you mentioned the change with COVID. Can you go into that in a little bit more detail? What's changed over the last two years from where we were before COVID? Um, what we see happening is that burnout and moral injury appear to be accelerating. And, and Mark's outlined this, but it used to be, you know, in the high 30s and now is in 50, 60, or even 70% of some groups. And we know something is going wrong, um, but it seems a lot worse now. There's multiple factors that we can hypothesize, but we really don't know for sure. Mark, maybe you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's been rising steadily, and then it took a, a big steep rise over the last year. But it started in the 2000s as 27%, and then just before the pandemic was 43% in physicians, and now it's up in the 50% or higher range. Uh, in the Coping with COVID study that we ran with the AMA that we published in eClinical Medicine, the Lancet's online venue just ahead of our commentary, we looked at 20,000 healthcare workers and um, and showed that um, workload, fear of exposure and transmission, anxiety and depression uh, were major drivers of uh, burnout and stress. And there was a mitigator which is a bit of a surprise, which is feeling valued by your organization was a huge benefit, uh, dramatically associated with less burnout and lower stress. And we've now had three coping with COVID papers, and they've all confirmed that feeling valued is a major mitigator. An enhanced sense of meaning and purpose is a little more nuanced about how effective it is at reducing burnout, but feeling valued is consistent. And when you say feeling valued, how does an organization show its workforce that they that the organization values them? So that is a terrific question. <laughs> and I say that with great sincerity because that is what we would like our next grant to be. Uh, it sounds easy to just have people tell you we value you. But as you know, that's not the answer. It's not enough. You have to act in a way that people feel valued. So if you're saying you're suffering on the front lines and you need time, for basic needs or for someone else to take care of you, if no one's there to support you, then you don't feel valued. If you're left without sufficient staff or with too many patients or with too long a shift and there's no time to reflect on the serious things that are going on in front of you, that feels like the organization does not value you. And so it's complicated. But as I've said all along, the most important part here is listening, listening to people that are hurting and asking just what you asked me, Wendy, how do I make you know that I value what you're doing? Because I do. What do I have to do? And then doing it. Yeah. So it sounds like, first of all, paying attention to people, asking them what they need, hearing them, and then delivering it. I think that's the recipe. And I think the work Michelle is doing, which is getting at some of the specific um, pressure points that arise where this comes up quickly and urgently and painfully, once you know what they are 
then you can start asking at the right time. Right. How do you feel about this? What do you need? Do you need someone else to go in the room with you when this controversial, complicated problem is going on? How can we help you? How can we reduce the moral injury that is going on? What do you need? Mark, you have a tremendously longitudinal um, perspective on this. What has been the primary driver, in your opinion, of this change in valuing individuals? What was things like 20 years ago that have now changed, and, and what do you think is driving behind that? I realize this is not going to be a answer backed by research, potentially, but you have perspective, and I'd like to hear that. Well, that, that's the other great question, Simon, so thank you for asking it. Um, certainly one that I spend a lot of time at night thinking about. Um, I'll start it, and then Michelle's got an answer to it also, which is crucial. But So I was doing some work over the weekend for a paper that we're resubmitting to the British Medical Journal that looks like it may get there on um, how would you design an organization that was supportive and caring of its workers. Um, and I came across a reference to Susan Falkman's work back in the 70s, and she's the one who pioneered all the work on coping. And it says, work stress occurs when demands exceed internal and external resources to do the job. So both internal and external. And so what I think is happening is that both of those have really taken a turn for the worse lately. So a variety of factors were emerging pre-pandemic, um, and now there is this toxic mix of burnout, depression, PTSD, moral injury, and just general depletion which seems to be all coming together. So prior to the pandemic, as we wrote in the e-clinical medicine commentary a few months ago, it was a known burnout predictors of what we call time pressure in the three C's. So time pressure during visits, lack of control, chaotic environments, and unfavorable organizational cultures, especially lack of values alignment with leaders. Those were the ones that we knew drove burnout in the memo study, and then we addressed those in the Healthy Workplace Randomized Trial. Uh, subsequent to that, and in the MS squared, minimizing stress in the electronic record study. But now there is a year and a half of trauma without allowing time to heal and an attempt to ramp up the pace of practice due to lack of care for a year, what's been called pent-up demand, with coexisting health system challenges such as loss of personnel and poorly responsive systems in terms of necessary changes for a remote care or telemedicine, which was very effective early in the pandemic. And so a lot of things are coming together. Michelle, you've got some points to make on that as well, I believe. Yeah, I mean, so point one is related to what's driving um, this escalation, at least the hypothesis of this escalation. And, you know, we've really not seen in medicine a problem uh, like COVID that's been so disastrously kind of polarizing and political um, as in healthcare as providers, we see patients and we see patients and families suffering and dying and we can't, um, it's hard as a provider to get outside of your own head to see how someone could look at it differently. Um, also with COVID, I think there's more phenomenon of racial awareness um, in healthcare inequities. And certainly um, in our study, providers and nurses have increased recognition of disparities in healthcare consequences. So those are a couple other theories about what's driving it. In terms of Mark's point about organizational culture, I think that's 
really uh, a lot of the issue. I think there needs to be a real concerted effort for partnership between providers and executive leadership. And it's certainly difficult when healthcare systems have such financially adverse um, issues and their uh, burnout um, in the, amongst the leaders is quite high and it makes it hard to solve this issue. But ultimately, our jobs are to deliver quality health care to patients. And unless we have providers who are healthy and trusting and engaged, this just cannot happen. So when you talk about the leadership having a fair amount of burnout, do you have a sense of where their burnout is coming from, what the drivers are for them, and whether it's different than for clinicians? So we have an instrument that we created. Um, we have the mini-Z measure for stress and burnout and the predictors that we've been using for several years, nationally and internationally, and at Hennepin, that we designed for quick measurement. And you get a very good readout of what's happening with a, a unit or a department or an organization from those 10 questions. Um, we've modified it for leaders. And so we have an administrative leaders mini Z, and we just added some specific questions to that. So it's now 20 questions, and we're getting ready to pilot test and validate that one. So I don't know the causes of it, Wendy, yet. What I do know is that it's incredibly prevalent and powerful. Uh, this has been a time that has tested leadership perhaps more than any other, the decisions leaders have had to make, and that probably there's been less resources spent figuring out how to care for our leaders than for the rest of us. And I think the leaders will definitely need some attention during this next phase of the pandemic. So this is <laughs> diving into the meat of that question, which is, what do we do next? How do we address this in a meaningful way? As you know, and I'm sure has been the case in your health system, there are many things that have focused on individuals, and there have been attempts to look at bigger changes. But what are the first steps and what are the bigger goals? So I think good starts are being made. We've been doing this now for seven years at Hennepin. So good starts are being made with chief wellness officers, which Michelle is doing this year uh, for us and is now being done at dozens of programs around the country. They're also building infrastructures. This is crucial to promote wellness and well-being. So there's a, a wellness committee, a network of wellness champions throughout the organization. All the departments and units need to be represented. The good work you and Wendy are doing to, to inform people of moral injury needs an infrastructure to do that work on our behalf to listen and to spread the word and then to spread the interventions that are done. Also, mental health supports and systems for depression identification, monitoring, and reduction are coming into place. Resilience training programs are also being done in venues nationally, and we know that that is also effective, but we also agree that system change is the main thing that we advocate for, and so we are working on that. Michelle. Yeah, um, along the lines of, you know, these long-term longitudinal data, we certainly understand that something bad has happened and that it needs to be attended to urgently. And Mark's outlined some nice ways of trying to deal with that. There's a phenomenon well described in a paper by um, Hamrick and Epstein, and it's called the crescendo effect of moral injury. And basically the concept is there's a morally injurious situation. That situation goes away, but doesn't have complete resolution. Mm. And then there's another hit, well, 
morally injurious situation. And the baseline just crescendos. So once we know that moral distress is there, it needs to be addressed or um, the effect just gets worse and worse and worse. So it's mm-hmm. not just the primary injury, mm-hmm. the moral in- injurious, morally injurious situation, but it's also the lack of system change to improve. Right. It's the event and then a lack of resolution of that and then repeated events. And there's where the system comes into it. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that we recommended in the article that brought you to us in the commentary, I just mentioned a few that was sort of the, if you had to start now, where would you start? Answer to organizations that want to start. So the first is placing burnout and moral injury on the organizational dashboard. So you're looking at it right along with everything else about quality of care and patient safety and patient satisfaction and, Anything else? Um, implementing mental health support programs so that there's on-demand counseling and mental health days available as needed and flexible time for FTEs so people can heal and take more time for themselves. A big one is right-sizing workloads to reduce time pressure. And I don't know that most organizations really reach out to workers to find out how are you doing with your workload? What do we have to do to make sure that we have not exceeded your capacity to do what needs to be done? And then explicitly measure and report out on moral injury while developing programs to reduce exposure and recurrence. So I I wonder if you have ideas about why it's hard for them to ask folks about their workload. It's another great question, Wendy. We should just keep going with this. There's more many questions you can come up with because they're all good. I don't know why it's really so hard. I know the easy answer, which is just organizations are under tremendous financial pressure right now after the pandemic to try to recoup. They also have a huge amount of demand for patients for primary care and elective surgery, but people are still a little bit nervous about opening everything up. Um, It's just a very hard time to slow down and ask, can you keep up with this? And yet that is the question. And in, in some ways, I mean, I'm always hopeful when we have a conversation like this, that we can figure out a way that to show people how to ask that question. How does an organization ask its workers, how are you doing about the work that you're doing? I think it's the right question, Wendy. My worry is if we don't ask it, then it's a piece of the value question, right? Mm -hmm. If we're not asking, we're not answering, we're not providing. Yeah, it's really hard to make sure values are completely aligned. And if we just keep coming back to the, the patient and the patient's care, a lot of the solutions um, become more transparent. For example, we're not particularly good at matching up operational challenges to provider needs in terms of helping facilitate uh, working to the top of your license, certainly, um, you know, efficient patient care and the like. Yeah. We also included a couple of ideas there about promoting equity by gender and for racially minoritized groups, because we just recently published a paper that showed that for women and persons of color, this can contribute to high stress and burnout uh, if the environment is not not supportive and welcoming. And then another of our recommendations, the one you asked about, Wendy, which is about addressing burnout and leaders and making sure that they're able to ask that question and have space to do that and respond to it uh, within themselves and from their organization. And so we actually have a nice scale for measuring values alignment with leadership that we've used for years that's incredibly informative and highly related to burnout in us and adverse 
outcomes for the patients. And then we also recommend measuring trust in the organization, which is a parallel measure to the um, feeling valued measure, but it's a nice short four or five item measure. We have a couple of articles coming out about that and one in JAMA Network opened last year about the importance of trust from the clinicians in the organization. And then maybe finally calling out suicide prevention as an explicit goal of the organization so that people know that this is something we care about and we want to make sure that if you're hurting, there's no stigma. We are there for you and setting up programs to do that. So Simon, those are some of my ideas about the, the menu, if you will. Yeah, thank you. Things to do. Thank you very much. I mean, I think it's interesting when you talk about trust. Trust is so entwined with alignment of values Mm -hmm. and caring for your faculty and your staff. So I think that's such an important one that sort of underpin many of the other areas. You know, if you trust your leadership and if you have aligned values between your frontline staff and your leadership, it makes it much easier to do some of the other things like focusing on mental health, like re-engineering chaotic environments like looking at workflows and considering equity and all these things become much easier when you're working as a team rather than as individuals. But the the hardest thing about trust is that for every one incident of distrust, you have to have five incidents to nine incidents of rebuilding the trust. So it's critical for leadership to really gauge that carefully. Right to maintain trust rather than to lose it and try and get it back again. Right. Secure trust, not swift trust, is the phrase I learned in some of these articles that we wrote. Simon, the list you just went through is exactly, I mean, you you couldn't have summarized our work any better than what you just said about what we think it takes to build a healthy organization that will be good for its workers, its clinicians, and its patients. Those are the things. And when you build those things, Wendy, I would hope that maybe the ratio of untrustworthy events to trustworthy wouldn't be as steep. Uh, Once you have some secure trust in your organization, if things go wrong, you might give it a second chance. If all those things Simon just listed that define a healthy work environment were present. Right. I think that's a great place for us to wrap this up. And I really appreciate both of you coming and sharing the work that you've done and thinking through with us some of the questions that don't have any answers. Yeah, thank you. And we're so encouraged by all the work you're doing to try and put some science to the feelings that many of us have. Well, just right back at you for the work that you've done to champion this cause of moral injury prevention and to highlight it so the world knows it's there, to give voice to what we see and the work that Michelle is doing. And uh, thank you for that. Thank you so much for having us. That was very much our pleasure. Thanks so much. So, Wendy, one of the things that we spoke about with Mark and Michelle is this idea that a lot of the distress that physicians feel and clinicians feel and the moral injury that they're feeling is not by itself new and perhaps most importantly is not has not been caused by the COVID pandemic. It might have been exacerbated by COVID, um, but this has been going on for a while and there's been a little well, not a little, a fairly steady increase when you actually measure it clinically. But I think one of the other interesting things is there are some aspects of the COVID pandemic that might have actually helped in some ways. These ideas that building community, which happened through some hospitals during COVID, and this idea of feeling valued and having purpose and alignment of values between individuals and between hospital systems, I think 
is a really important concept because it starts to get at some of the things that can actually address this problem. Yeah, I think that's the striking piece, right? That there are a large number of folks who have felt really beleaguered. And then there's a subset who have said, this is my purpose. This is why I went into medicine. Mm -hmm. And there's also the subset who said, I feel like I'm being devalued. And there's another set who says, I really feel like my organization has stepped up and appreciates what I do. Mm -hmm. And that has made it more meaningful for me to go to work every day and do what I do, no matter how hard it is. I think a huge part of that that's really important to acknowledge is that this is the very beginning of looking at some of the ways we can address the problem. Because when you consider that during the pandemic, we had more work than we knew what to do with, more dangerous stuff going on than we were all comfortable with, and not a whole lot of uh, good ways to address some of the stuff, and people were still feeling good about it, Right. <laughs> that tells you that it's not about the volume of work, it's not about the risk of the work, but that a tremendous amount is about purpose, value, trust, all these sort of gray areas, if you like, but really important areas. Yeah, it's that thing where so many of us tend to focus on what's going wrong, when in fact, what can be really helpful is focusing on what's going right. Yeah. And understanding why it's going right. Yeah. And I really like the thing that Mark said, can you keep up with this? Mm -hmm. Just that simple question of, can you keep up with the work you're being asked to do? Yeah. And it seems like that's such a simple thing for us to ask everyone around us. Yeah. I mean, that gets to some of the sort of the very immediate ideas of addressing this that they spoke about. Measuring this, focusing on mental health support, maximizing flexibility, looking at right-sizing workloads. You know, many of these things really important. They're sort of immediate, urgent things that we should be doing. But I think as we all recognize, there are really big issues systemically that we need to continue to look at as well. Yeah. We do need to address the immediate crisis that we're faced with, but we can't stop asking for systemic change. Exactly. So thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you would like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're on that website. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you've subscribed, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thank you for listening. And stay well. <laughs>